Assalamu alaikum and welcome back to Technology Watch. Today we're going to talk about something very, very interesting and that is what are the five technologies that are going to radically change our world in the next five years? Now, we know technology is moving at an incredible rate and we know it's changing things all around us. But what are the five top things? And this is according to IBM's researchers. So these are not just small fry people. These are some of the top researchers in the world that are working at IBM's research facilities around the world. And they are personally involved in various technologies that are going to change the world. And this is their prediction. Now, they made these predictions at IBM's Think Conference that they held uh, last year, uh, last month in San Francisco. And uh, some of these are truly, truly remarkable. Now, according to IBM Senior Vice President for Cloud and Cognitive Software, his name is uh, Arvind Krishna. So this guy says that to meet the demands of the crowded future, and he's talking about a future where human beings are going to clock the 8 billion mark in terms of global population in the next five years. So to prepare for, to meet the demands of this crowded future, IBM researchers are exploring new technologies and devices, scientific breakthroughs, and entirely new ways of thinking about food safety and security. So this is what Arvin, IBM's senior vice president, has to say. That when, it, when we talk about these these technologies, now these are very unusual technologies in a sense that they have very little to do with actual computers and smartphones and more to do with other things in life. You know, one of the characteristics of the fourth industrial revolution, we always hear this term, but what does it actually mean? The fourth industrial revolution is actually a, a phenomenon where computers are no longer just stuck to our desktops or doing amazing things on the screen. They've now made their foray into the real world. Take self-driving cars, for example. In the past, you know, other than in science fiction, we could have never imagined that cars will drive by themselves, that computers will actually drive cars. So in the past, computers did things like crunching numbers, did calculations, we did our web surfing, we did our graphic design, we did our work. But now the computers have jumped out of the, the desktops, they've done, jumped out of the monitors, and they are starting to drive cars. They're starting to pilot airplanes. They're starting to uh, drive drones. So there's, there's a lot that computers are doing now that they've never done before. So this is what defines the fourth industrial revolution. And there's two technologies that actually combine, well, three technologies. One is a, a plain old computing technology that we're all familiar with. And then there's the Internet of Things. And then there's artificial intelligence so all of these three things are working together to drive this fourth industrial revolution. So IBM's five in five, five predictions over the next five years have to do with artificial intelligence and Internet of Things working together with extremely powerful computers to literally radically change life and business. So what, what technologies are these exactly? Now these technologies will go from seeds in the farms to harvest to shelf to table 
to recycling. So we get it. What's this all about? It's mostly about food production. Now, technology, we know for some time, has been moving into all fields, but now it's moving into agriculture. And in a massive way, technology is taking over the agricultural world. And the first example is of a farm in Kenya, I believe it is, Masila. So one problem that farmers face is that it's difficult to get um, scientific, uh, I mean, it's difficult to get information about about their farm to help them make decisions about where and when to plant things. Now, uh, a small startup company called Hello Tractor believes that they have the solution to this problem. Now, what they've created is um, a small device with sensors on it that are placed around the farm and these sensors monitor the the farm itself they gather information like weather patterns uh, dimensions elevations and it uploads all of this information to a blockchain now farmers can use this information to to determine what's the best place to plant um, uh, which parts of the farm, for example, are, are getting the most uh, the most uh, sunlight or, or water or things like that? Then, on a separate device, they uh, a separate device will actually monitor the soil itself. So, what you do is the the farmer will place a small piece of soil uh, on this device, and it will tell him about the minerals in the soil. It will tell him about the water. And again, all of this information will be uploaded to a blockchain. So the combination of this data from the from the tractors and the soil samples, right, that's going to go towards a what they call a digital twin of the farm. So basically, there'll be a reconstruction of that farm on a supercomputer. And farmers will be able to uh, look at that model of their farms and that model will use artificial intelligence to tell the farms, uh, tell the farmers exactly what is going on in the farms and when is the best time to plant, what's the best pattern. I mean, these are things that that most people don't even know about that uh, that are necessary on farms. Now, in doing all of this, what exactly is going to happen is that, or what is already happening is that th- this technology is optimizing land usage. And by optimizing land usage, it's increasing food production quite a bit. So there's a lot of production happening, uh, additional production happening, and these farmers are seeing better yields because now they're making informed decisions thanks to this uh, technology. Now, it's just a matter of time before this rather, it's kind of experimental right now, but it'll be quite some time or a short time before it becomes global. And what we're going to have is a a representation of the world's farms exactly where they are in terms of their productivity the capability what does the water table look like under the farm what's the the nutrient content of the of the soil what is the the water content of the soil itself what's the climate like what's the humidity level then we're going to have small scientists who who are now given the ability of giant farms to make scientific uh, decisions about their farms. And this is going to be phenomenal because just as we thought, you know, we've reached the pinnacle of agriculture, 
we're now going to go even beyond and we're going to boost production even more. And this is really amazing because all through the, the, the past century, people were concerned about food production. You know, when the world's population was sitting at 1 billion and then 2 billion, people were wondering what's going to happen to the world's population. How are people going to actually uh, uh, survive? How is the world going to produce enough food for so many people? And yet, the population grew multifold. It grew to four and five, and now it's coming to eight billion. And people are still wondering. But we're seeing that with the scientific progress, the productivity is increasing. But then, you know, there's another problem. As productivity increases, we're facing another problem, which is a huge problem. And that is a large portion of the food that we produce goes to waste. And that is the real disaster. According to uh, IBM's researchers, almost half of all the food produced in the world by the world's farms actually goes to waste. Tell us about that, Masila. And the, the reason that the, this food goes to waste is that we don't have a proper supply chain. So it's, he describes it as chaotic, that um, food just leaves the farm and it gets to areas and if it doesn't get sold, it just goes bad. It's, it's basically too much food that's being delivered to some areas while other, other areas that need it uh, are not getting food. And this also costs millions of, of dollars. So what they predict or, or what they want to do is have Internet of Things devices that will track movements of food along the entire supply, supply chain. And this device will, will gather information like uh, the temperature, how ripe the fruits are and uh, well, how close they are to spoiling. Again, this data will all be uploaded to a database or a blockchain and using the using this data we will be able to make very accurate decisions on where and when to deliver food so what's happening basically is that if i understand this right it's that this system over the next 5 years will will map exactly where food is being delivered and because there are sensors on the fruit on the fresh produce boxes so it will tell us where the food is actually being purchased and consumed and where it's being wasted. I mean, we see that all the time. You go to one supermarket and you see there's a pile of fruits and veggies and uh, there's no one buying it. And then you go to another place and you find that there's, there's a shortage. Now, this is happening even surprisingly in the most advanced countries. I mean, if you look at uh, the food wastage in, in the United States, it's, it's quite high. Now, these systems are especially designed to monitor and track this food. So over time, what the scientists will be able to do is that they will they will be able to exactly say where food is being wasted, where uh, you know too much of food is being sent, and we'll be able to do this with a high degree of of accuracy. So farmers will know that certain supermarkets, for example, in in Peter Marisburg, are are in need of this uh, fresh produce and too much is being channeled to say Port Shepston. So what they're going to do is they're going to reduce the, the, uh, the shipments to Port Shepston and forward it to Peter Marisburg. And in this way, food will be distributed more accurately to places that they, that it's needed the most. 
and then wastage will be brought to a minimum. Now, this is amazing technology. It actually uses a combination of Internet of Things and artificial intelligence and one more technology, which is the blockchain. Now, what's going to happen is from the moment the, the, the plants are cultivated, they're going to go into these little, you know, the packaging that uh, we, we normally see fruits and veggies in. And each of those boxes is going to have a sensor. And these sensors are ultra-sensitive and super advanced. And they're going to be able to sense the temperature, the, the, the status of the, of the fruits, what state, as Masila explained, what state it's, it is in terms of ripeness or going beyond ripe and about to spoil. And this sensor will continuously monitor this and it will, it will uh, communicate to a supercomputer. So all of these sensors on all of these, <clears throat> all of these uh, boxes will communicate to a single supercomputer that uses artificial intelligence to understand the movement of this, uh, of this fresh produce through the supply chain. So from farm to warehouse to trucks, to uh, on the road to supermarkets and wholesale every single step of the way is going to be uh, monitored and all of this information will be fed back and stored in a massive database which is a blockchain uh, database and that information is going to be monitored so the first couple of years they're just going to monitor they're not going to make any radical changes they're just going to monitor the movement of food and they're going to identify where exactly the wastage is taking place and from there they're going to, once they've established patterns, they're going to uh, make uh, n new predictions now about where the food should actually be distributed. This is phenomenal technology. This is amazing technology. I mean, if you think about uh, what what the researchers at IBM are saying, almost half the food goes to waste. Now, imagine how this is going to impact the global economies, how it's going to impact world hunger, for example. On one hand, we got the Hello Tractor uh, technology, which is boosting productivity on smaller farms. That means small farms are now going to be working together as if they are giant farms. And this is something definitely needed in, in countries like South Africa, where we've got lots and lots of small farmers. They'll be working together. They'll be able to make scientific decisions about their farms and grow much more food than they ever did before. So we're going to have highly optimized uh, agricultural uh, production and now from there we, we're going to uh, totally avoid food wastage because from the farm to the table we have to make sure that none of this food is wasted or very little of this food is wasted and that's where internet of things and artificial intelligence technology is going to come in once again and it's going to monitor this food and make sure there's no wastage now between the extra productivity and the, 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 the absolute uh, minimal waste, we're going to have a lot more food available, which hopefully, inshallah, we'll be able to channel to those places, those countries that actually need it the most and offer it there, you know, as, as relief or offer it as, uh, you know, at a very low price and, you know, uh, solve, possibly solve world hunger in that way. This is one place, you know, where technology is doing some amazing thing. It's mind-boggling to see technology playing an active role in food production. Now, what does this mean for farmers in the future? And more importantly, what does it mean for us as consumers and also us as professionals?
how will this impact us? Now, as far as the farmers go, obviously, higher yields, higher productivity, better uh, logistics and supply chain management. What does this mean? It will obviously mean better, higher revenues for them because they're doing higher productivity and less of their food is being delivered to, of their produce is being delivered to places that don't need it. They are distributing to places that need it the most. So they'll, they will obviously uh, see higher revenues. On the other hand, all through the, the supply chain, there's going to be people needed to monitor these, to ensure that these systems are working efficiently, that they're working properly. There's no faults along the way. Then behind the scenes, in the server rooms, wherever they, they're going to be based, we're going to need people that are programming these artificial intelligence systems and people that are monitoring these systems to see that the food is being delivered properly, the food is optimal. Then there's people that are going to be assisting with making predictions about where the food should be uh, distributed. And for us as consumers, hopefully, all of this will filter down to us and it will benefit us in a sense that food will become even cheaper. I know food prices are going up just like with everything else, but how awesome will it be if with all of these uh, technologies, food prices can go lower, that it becomes affordable for uh, even the poor. So this will be quite amazing. Now, we often you know, worry about technology and how it's progressing. And when we talk about technology, we always think in terms of cell phones and, and tablet PCs and computers. But here right in front of us is technology that is going to be released within the next five years that is playing such a key role in the food that we eat. I mean, imagine walking into a supermarket and before you can even pick up a fruit, that little sensor is already telling you this fruit is about to spoil, don't buy it. Or this um, vegetable is has, has passed its, its sell-by date. You shouldn't buy this. It's not fit for human consumption. Now, exactly how will these sensors actually know these things? How will we, these sensors be able to tell us that this food, this fruit is ripe or this fruit has, has, uh, passed its, uh, its sell by date that it's about to spoil. Now that is another amazing technology that we're going to discuss in next week's program. There we're going to talk about the next two of the five predictions. Today we just spoke about the first two. The, in, in next week we're going to talk about the next two, which will tell us exactly how these little sensors will operate and uh, tell us about uh, you know, the food that we're buying in supermarkets. But not only that, it'll also tell us about the food that we have at home. Perhaps you bought something some time back and now you take it out of your fridge and you, you're thinking to yourself, should I eat this or not? Is this fit for consumption or not? I don't want to eat this and then, you know, uh, have a running stomach, uh, have tummy aches, etc. So these senses are going to be in our homes as well. And they're going to tell us whether the food in our fridge or the food in our our uh, our kitchen shelves are fit for consumption. That's all time we have uh, uh, for today's episode. And uh, unfortunately, we have to wrap it up. I hope you, uh, our listeners, enjoyed and were entertained and educated by this episode as much as we were in, in doing the research. Uh, this is Technology Watch. I'm Bilal Katrada. And I'm Masihullah Katrada. And we'll catch you next time. You are listening to Marquez Sahaba, the voice of Ahl Sunnah.
This is the amazing beauty of creation. I'm Bilal Katrada. And I'm Talha Katrada. And this is the show that brings you up close with the universe around you. Assalamu alaikum and welcome back to the amazing beauty of creation. I'm your host Bilal Katrada. And I'm your co-host Talha Katrada. And today we're going to do something a little different. Normally we talk about specific creatures and specific things that Allah Ta'ala created. But today we're going to look at not just one object or one creature. We're going to look at a system that he created, an amazing system. You know, the one thing really mind-boggling about Allah Ta'ala's creation is not just that he created individual creatures, but that he created a multitude of creatures and he put them into different systems. And those systems are so well-tuned, so well-greased, they just operate on their own. And the more we learn about these systems, the more amazed we become at just how beautiful so many different moving parts work together. I'm talking about things like different creatures and plants and weather systems and currents and tides and, and chemical systems all things working together to make a, a an ecosystem, for example, operate for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And by us as human beings, making one small, tiny little change to a system, it sets off a domino effect. It triggers an effect that causes a lot more damage down the line. It's like, for example, a person has a, a cell phone, all right, and you, you you simply change one setting inside that cell phone, just one little setting, and suddenly the cell phone goes bonkers and everything goes goes crazy. But if you didn't interfere with that setting, that cell phone would operate beautifully. Now, in the world, all over the world, not in just one or two places, in fact, all over the universe, Allah Ta'ala has made the system of things that are working together so beautifully. And one such system, one such amazing system is the amazing, amazing Amazon jungle. Now, what's truly remarkable about the Amazon jungle, one of the most remarkable things is that they say if the earth were a creature, then that creature's lungs would be the Amazon jungle. The Amazon jungle is benefiting us sitting here in our own countries, here in South Africa or Europe or United States or wherever we may be, the Amazon jungle is benefiting us indirectly by producing oxygen that's distributed across the globe. But there's so much more about the Amazon jungle that we ourselves didn't know about. But in doing research for this episode, we realized. And now we have a further and a much more greater appreciation about the amazing beauty of Allah's creation. So tell us, tell us something about the Amazon jungle. I know it's huge, right? How big is it really? The Amazon jungle is the largest tropical rainforest in the world. Uh, it occupies an area of about 5.5 million square kilometers. That is huge. Give us context. How big is 5.5 million kilometers? So 5.5 million kilometers is roughly about 4.5 times the size of South Africa. Wow. So that's one single so, jungle, almost five times the size of our entire country. Wow. I mean, just thinking of a, of a jungle the size of Durban or Johannesburg, that's huge. But five times the size of South Africa. Wow, that's huge. 
and um they so because it's so big the amazon uh, jungle spreads across a very large area and it actually occupies areas in nine different countries okay and so the naturally the amazon jungle is, is very famous for its size and of course of its biodiversity or the, the the amount of different creatures animal and plant species you get there okay before we and go there uh where exactly is the amazon jungle and what are those nine countries that it uh, it occupies okay the amazon jungle is located in, in south america uh, it occupies most of the area in northern south america and it occupies it a majority of the amazon rainforest is in the country of brazil but it stretches out and it occupies areas in colombia peru venezuela ecuador bolivia ghana and french ghana and also a bit of it is in the country of suriname okay that's uh, that's that's a lot of countries for a single jungle to be spread across but i mean the amazon is huge five times the size of south africa All right. Um in terms of uh the biodiversity, the plants, the trees, what what can you tell us? Okay, now naturally a forest will have trees. So if you think of a forest a uh, jungle four and a half times the size of South Africa, it's going to have a lot of trees and it's estimated that the Amazon jungle has about 390 billion trees. Wow. That's a lot of trees there. Now to put that into contest, if you were to take the trees in the Amazon and distribute it equally to every living person, each person will receive fifty trees. Okay, fifty trees per person. Except that you know, I don't want fifty trees because I don't have place to keep fifty trees. Now, naturally, those plants create oxygen, and as you said, the Amazon would be the lungs of the earth, and it's estimated. that the amazon jungle produces 20% of the oxygen in earth's atmosphere so what that what that essentially means right so if the amazon is producing all of this oxygen and the air currents are are, are distributing this oxygen around the world right am i am i correct in saying that so if it's 20% that means for every five breaths that you breathe in one is coming from the amazon can we say that on average yeah it's it's Amazing. Now, Tell us about the plants. More about the plants, uh, the other plants in the, in the Amazon. Yeah, so that, as we mentioned before, the Amazon jungle is known to be one of the most biodiverse places on Earth. In fact, they say one in every ten species on Earth lives in the Amazon jungle. So if if let's just say if there was only a hundred creatures on Earth, ten of those creatures would live in the Amazon alone, and the rest of the world will only have 90 i mean that's remarkable but n- somehow not surprising i mean you've got a, a forest a jungle the size of well five times the size of south africa one would expect that there'd be that many creatures in there now when you look at tree species alone it is estimated that there are over 16000 species of trees that grow in the amazon jungle So that that is pretty much a quarter of all known tree species on earth that that grow exclusively in the or grow can be found in the Amazon rainforest. And to to just to show the the intensity of the biodiversity in in the Amazon jungle a study conducted in 2001 revealed that an area of rain, Amazon rainforest 
roughly the size of 32 football fields could support more than 1,100 uh, uh, tree species. So just a small area like that, and there could be 1,100 different tree species so growing in it. we're not talking about 1,100 different trees. We're talking about 1,100 different species of trees. I mean, you know, it's hard for us to imagine such a, a dense biodiversity, especially here in South Africa, because we've got mostly open savannas and you could walk for kilometers and just see grass and maybe you you might see, uh, what, 40 or 50 different species uh, of plants. But here you're saying 1,100 species in the size of, a, of 32 football fields. That, that alone shows how biodiverse uh, the Amazon is. It's really mind-boggling. But that's just that's just the trees. Now, if you talk about other plants like shrubs and mosses, there could be as many as eighty thousand plant species in the Amazon. Now, of course, be the Amazon being so big and so dense, it's really hard for scientists to actually go and start counting how many. So, what they do is they find the plant species that they know, and then see how many more new ones are being discovered every year, and then through some calculations, they can somewhat get an estimate of how many species there could be in the Amazon. I guess they, 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 they're doing their best guesstimates because from what I've read, every, every day there's new species being discovered in the Amazon by scientists. It's really, really amazing. You know, the, but the question is, you know, there's, there's this... And what's really mind-boggling is what I alluded to at the, at the beginning, that Allah Ta'ala made this planet... And on the planet, he's got different types of terrain. So on one hand, you've got the dry, arid deserts like the Sahara. And then you've got the Amazon jungle, absolutely dense forest, so dense. I mean, it, it must be difficult walking in there also. And then you've got your, your, your icy poles and then you've got your grasslands. It's so amazing that Allah Ta'ala has created all this, you know, this almost this patchwork of... of uh, uh, of different types of terrain, of different types of plants. But what we don't realize is that whereas something like the Sahara might seem to us as a, a just a wasteland, a desert wasteland, but even it serves its purpose. Just like we discussed, you know, about the oceans, that the oceans in their size and their depth, they serve a purpose to uh, regulate the Earth's temperature. The Sahara also has its own uh, purpose. It has its function. It's not useless as far as uh, you know the, uh, why it's there. Allah Ta'ala has put it there for a reason. Now tell us about that. I, I'm really keen on knowing how, you know, what role the Sahara surprisingly plays in the Amazon. I mean, these two are what, uh, tens of thousands of kilometers apart. Okay, so plants need a nutrient called phosphorus to grow and, and stay healthy. And the Amazon jungle, although it has some of its own phosphorus, but due to fl flooding and rains and things, a lot of that phosphorus gets washed out of the soil and is lost. But somehow, the Amazon has this constant supply of phosphorus, always new phosphorus coming in. Where does all of this phosphorus or all this nutrients come from? The answer is in the Sahara Desert in northern Africa, more than four and a half thousand kilometers away. Mm, that is amazing. 
Now, it's, 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 it's very confusing to think about, but it's estimated that 182 million tons of phosphorus-rich dust blows out of the Sahara Desert every year and flies towards, carried by the wind over the Atlantic Ocean and lands in the Amazon jungle. That is, you know, this is, this is what, this is what really amazes me. 182 million tons every year being deposited from Sahara into the Amazon. You know, this, do you, do you sense that none of this is happening by chance? This is a system that Allah Ta'ala has made. It's so mind-boggling. Here, there's the forest, one of the richest, most diverse uh, jungles in the world. And it's being nourished by one of the most lifeless places in the world. It's such a beautiful balance that Allah Ta'ala has created. Now tell us, how, how does this phosphorus actually blow across? And how did we, how did we discover this? Now, this was discovered uh, by NASA. They, they launched a, teles- uh, not a telescope, a, a satellite called Calypso to study uh, dust particles and cloud patterns in, in the sky. And they see these huge plumes of dust flying from North, uh, from, uh, North Africa to South America. Now, th- those dust grains that blow across, they, they're extremely tiny, must be about uh, you know, the tenth of the width of a human hair. But hundreds and millions of them fly across every year. And that's from space, you can actually see these huge plumes of dust, almost looks like clouds flying across. Mm. That's amazing. That's amazing. And then, we, you know, we often think of Sahara as a, as a wasteland, but now we see it has its own uh, a function. Beautiful, beautiful system created by Allah Ta'ala. Now, you know, there was... There's been talk recently of terraforming the Sahara Desert, meaning, you know, to, for lack of a better word, greenifying the desert, planting stuff into the desert and making it no longer a desert. And that, again, as much as it seems like it's a good idea and there's good intentions behind it, because obviously uh, a green Sahara Desert will be much better for the economies of the countries in the Sahara. But we didn't realize that if we did that, how it might just affect the Amazon jungle. So that might just cause some kind of uh, domino effect that causes uh, damage to to the Sahara Desert. It's unbelievable. Okay, so we spoke about the the plants uh, in the Sahara. Now, I know some of the weirdest creatures in the world live in the Amazon. That's one reason that if I ever go to the Amazon, I want... A, a a knight's armor or an Iron Man suit because I am terrified of some of the creatures that are in there. Tell us something about the the creatures uh, in the Amazon. Okay, so just like how the plants are so diverse and there's so many different species of plants in the Amazon, the same is true for for animals. And there's estimated to be 2.5 million species of insects that are found in the Amazon forest. In fact, a single tree in the Amazon jungle was found to have 46 different ant species on it. Now, to put that into context, that's around the same uh, amount of species of ants found in, in the UK, in all of the, 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 the British Isles. Amazing. So, one tree. One single tree. One tree has more species of ants than the whole of the United Kingdom. And that is mind-boggling. 
Now, the Amazon uh, jungles, water systems and, and surrounding rivers are home to around five, uh, 5,600 species of fish. And approximately 50 new species are discovered every year. Now, this is not species of insects or species of, of uh, animals. It's specifically fish species in the Amazon. Mm. 50 new species are discovered every single year. And that's what I say. I mean, almost on a daily basis, people are discovering new species, plants, animals, bugs, fish. Amazing. And some of those, I'm, I'm guessing, are not found anywhere else in the world, right? Exactly. Precisely. Now, it is still estimated that a single lake in, in the Amazon forest or somewhere within the vicinity of the Amazon's rivers can have more species of fish in it than all of Europe's rivers combined. Mm, that is truly remarkable. It's either that you know Europe is not particularly rich in fish species or the Amazon is just crazy uh, rich in species. Could be both. Now the Amazon is also uh, home to a lot of bird species. In fact, uh, 1400 bird species are found or at least 1400 bird species are found in the Amazon. Probably the 1400 we do know about. And once again, there's new species being discovered every uh, year. And that number, 1,400 birds uh, species, that's a fifth of all birds that we know. So one, one in every five bird species that we know of lives in the Amazon. In the jungle. Amazon. That's, that's so amazing. I'm sure that, you know, all these birds and animals and bugs that are out there, there's, I mean... I've come across some really scary ones, you know, there's there's uh some deadly deadly creatures there that that terrify us. Tell us some about about some of those. Um I don't think it will do justice for us in this episode to to go uh, through those. I think those creatures deserve their own episodes. So maybe the next episode we'll go into some of the creatures of of the Amazon, deadly creatures of the Amazon. Like for example, just give us a list Okay so you got your the green anaconda uh, which is probably one of the longest snakes on earth you got piranhas in the rivers uh, you got poison dart frogs that can kill you just by touching them and Whoa. those are just a few touch me not little frogs i can't yeah. wait for the next episode now in the meantime let's discuss a, a, a serious threat that the amazon jungle i- is facing yeah let's do that i was i was actually going to ask you about that we know that the the amazon is is under constant threat and we heard about deforestation of the amazon we heard that uh species are going extinct in the in the amazon especially those that have no other home anywhere in the world tell us about that how bad is the problem is it as bad as they make it out to be it's pretty bad uh, bad every year large tracts of land are, are cleared out of the amazon uh it's it's estimated that every 2 seconds an area the size of a football field is cleared out of the amazon that is yeah. huge every every 2 seconds every 2 seconds a football field size is cleared that's a frantic pace will there be anything left after even a couple of years uh it's estimated that at this rate within 50 years the amazon forests not just the Am- uh, not just the amazon but the the tropical rainforests uh, across the world can be completely wiped out 
But that's 20% of our oxygen right there and so many different creatures. Now, this is, you know, this is a, a very tricky situation. On one hand, we have people that need this land for agriculture, for manufacturing, for homes. And on the other hand, we have these, these biodiverse forests that play a part in a, a, a vital role in the functioning of the whole planet. You know, it's a, from, a, from an Islamic perspective, it's really such a tricky situation. I think that when, when you look at Rasulullah's emphasis on, on conservation, you know, on caring for the environment, on caring for creatures, I think we need to draw up a balance somewhere there. We need to put into place measures to avoid these these forests from becoming completely destroyed, but at the same time to make sure that people are not suffering as a result, because obviously people are the highest priority. If there are people suffering and, you know, that land is absolutely necessary, then obviously there is a concession. But if it's just for greed, I mean, and that's what drives almost everything, right, today. Everything is about greed, 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 more and more and more. It's like what we spoke about the whales, right? It People almost brought them to extinction, not out of necessity, but out of greed. And, you know, the, the funny thing about classical human greed is that it's so bad, it'll consume even the person, the greedy person will get consumed by his own greed. I mean, think about the whales, for example. If the whalers, out of their greed, wiped the whales out of the, uh, the planet, wiped them to extinction, what would have happened to them? They themselves would have gone out of a job. They would have deprived themselves of, the, of an income. Now, in the same way, when we're looking at these countries, these South American countries, now a lot of these are poor countries. These are not by any, uh, you know, middle to poor countries, and none of them are wealthy countries. I think the wealthiest there would be, the wealthiest would be Brazil. Now, obviously, there's a need to build the economies, but there's also a need to preserve these forests. And I think if we put, if we really put our minds to it, and if we really put our heads to it, we can come up with a solution. Otherwise, we're going to lose this biodiversity. And as much as we are having problems now with global warming, ocean currents, ocean levels rising and erratic weather patterns, things are just going to get worse and worse and worse if we keep interfering with this system that uh, Allah Ta'ala made. I mean, this system, these systems work like a, like a clock. You know, if you open the back, back of uh, an, uh, one of these, these old clocks, these, these mechanical clocks, and you see all of these little parts turning together, tick-tock, tick-tock, you just remove one tiny part and that entire clock just stops. Now, Allah Ta'ala systems in this planet, on this planet operate in that way. So I think we, we really, as a, as, a, as a human race, we can solve this problem. Uh, but we need to be a bit creative about it. I think, uh, Tala, we don't have any more time for today. We're out of uh, time. It's a, it's a wrap for today. I hope our listeners enjoyed and were entertained by this episode as much as uh, we were. And uh, we hope to catch them the next time. This is The Amazing Beauty of Creation. I'm Bilal Katrada. And I'm Talha Katrada. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and on Twitter at AB of Creation to give us feedback on our podcast and let us know if there's anything specific you'd like us to discuss in a future episode.